From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 193 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing good. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. So, before we launch into the episode, we thought up front we would remind folks about our Q&A episodes that are coming up, because the the final submission of questions is... Uh, rapidly approaching and will be very close when by the time this episode is released. So Craig, do you want to run through that again? Exactly. Absolutely. So we know that uh, we usually talk about this at the very end of the episode. We're not sure if everyone makes it there. So we want to make sure that you yeah, have some time at the beginning to definitely get in on it in case you do want to ask questions. So uh, the way to ask a question for our question and answer episode that will be airing uh, in the beginning of May, you got to go to facebook.com slash disunplugged if you don't have a Facebook account. Please, you know, find a friend who does and say, hey, go hit the thumbs up on the Diz Unplugged page and ask a question for me. And you can't just randomly go on there and ask a question anywhere. We have a pinned post at the top of the page. You can't miss it. It's the first thing that's going to come up, and it's going to be the big Connecting with Walt logo and say it's time once again for you to ask questions for an upcoming episode of Connecting with Walt. And so there you're just going to leave a question down in the comments, you know, obviously take a look at some of the questions that are already there. You don't want to necessarily ask the same exact one as someone else, but you know, if there's even a, there's even a take on a question that you, you feel like they're missing a part of that you want to ask, feel free to, to double down on it as well too. We go through all the questions, but uh, just make sure that you don't ask questions that can be answered with just a simple yes or no because we want to have a little fun discussion with it and don't ask questions that are about what we think Walt would think about any current Disney subject but feel free to ask any questions about Walt Disney himself, theme parks Imagineering, books, movies, TV the Walt Disney Company all, all of it we, we are happy to answer any question as long as it's not just a simple yes or no and what do we think Walt would think about this and you're running out of time to to ask those questions but uh, you still have just a little bit of time so get those last questions in okay excellent thank you all right well we are continuing and actually finishing up our series on the making of walt disney's snow white and the seven dwarfs in episodes 189 and 190 we began our exploration of walt disney's first full-length animated feature in episode 190 we talked about what led snow uh walt disney to select Snow White for his first animated feature. In episode 190, we talked about the development 
and creation of the character of Snow White. In episode 192, we talked about the development of the other human characters in the film and the artist's process for creating the film, and we left our story off in 1937. So as we talked about in our previous installment, the idea of an animated feature was met with skepticism by the press and in Hollywood, and they referred to it as Disney's Folly. An animator, Mark Davis, recalled a neighbor telling him, no one can sit through an hour of animation. It would ruin their eyes. This skepticism did not bother Walt, but the cost of the film worried his older brother, Roy, who was in charge of the studio finances. In 1941, Walt recalled, I thought we could make Snow White for around $250,000. At least that's what I told Roy. That figure didn't make much sense because we were spending about that much on every three silly symphonies or about 2,500 feet of picture. Roy was very brave and manly until the costs passed over a million. He wasn't used to figures over a 100,000 at a time. The extra cipher threw him. When costs passed the one and a half million mark, Roy didn't bat an eye. He couldn't. He was paralyzed. I believe the final figure, including prints, exploitation, etc., was around two million. We sort of halfway explained this to everybody by charging a million of it off to research and development. You know, building toward the future. And this was true, although we hadn't exactly planned it that way. The scope of the project the studio faced can be assessed from the magnitude of the numbers involved. The film was divided into 16 numbered sequences, from which sequence 12 and parts of sequences 1 and 14 had already been removed. The remaining 15 were subdivided into lettered subsequences. In these sequences, there was an aggregate of 780 scenes, from which 51 had been deleted by the time the drafts were typed. Many of the remaining scenes were, like the sequences, subdivided into lettered sub-scenes. Each scene was assigned an animator, a background, and its predetermined length of screen footage, timed to one one-hundredth of a foot. When combined, the draft's figures totaled 8,196 running feet of film. When calculated at the standard rate of 90 feet of film per minute, a film of this length would run 91 minutes. If there were only to be one animation drawing and its one corresponding hand-inked and painted cell for each 24th of a second in each of these 91 minutes, the total number of drawings and cells would be 131,400. However, much of Snow White was animated on four overlaying cell levels. If the total number of drawings and cells were multiplied by four, the total would be 524,160. No one in 1937 counted the actual number of drawings and cells used in the production, but 250,000 was an early estimate. It's just insane. It I know. An insane amount of, of drawings and ink and paint done for for the movie. I just... I, and I know we bring this up with some of the shorts and talking about the movies from time to time, but again, this is the 30s that they're accomplishing this. And 
you know, they're just they're just getting started in the grand scheme of things. It just it will continually blow my mind, no matter how much older I get. Um, what an accomplishment this was! Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was a feat of incredible magnitude for this era. Yeah. Yep. On January 5th, 1937, only 50 weeks were left for the studio to complete the film. There were 32 animators, 102 assistant animators, 107 in-betweeners, 66 inkers, 178 painters, and several cameramen split into two crews working on at least two camera stands who had to synchronize all their work to accomplish this project. Between 1934 and 1937, it is said that 750 artists contributed their talents to the making of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, making it the largest collaborative art project ever undertaken in the United States. Background painter Maurice Noble described the final year of production as a period of a series of nervous breakdowns. Time and money were in short supply, and Walt was flying by the seat of his pants, but neither shortage prevented him from lavishing both time and money onto every aspect of the production. He was constantly looking over everyone's shoulders and had a habit of changing his mind when presented with something as simple as a new drawing. Animator Frank Thomas recalled, We never knew if the studio would still be going next week. Our big concern was that Walt would go off in some crazy direction and kill the whole idea of the thing, and Walt would change his mind very often, and usually stick with an idea for one whole day, and then he'd come up with a new idea that was twice as good as the one he's had before, and he'd get you all sold on that. Walt encouraged new ideas for the film, and innovations from all departments were put into practice in 1937. From the camera department came the multiplane camera, invented by production manager Bill Garrity. A, camera st- a standard camera stand was fixed, but the multiplane camera had movable cell levels that could be independently adjusted up or down, toward or away from the camera. These adjustments heightened the illusion of a third dimension on the screen. The studio spent $75,000 on this technology. Walt tested it in the Academy Award-winning symphony, The Old Mill, which was released on November 5th, 1937, one month before the release of Snow White. If you ever visit the Walt Disney Family Museum, they have a wonderful um, demonstration when you walk into the gallery for the animation of this era of Walt explaining how they use the uh, the multiplane camera for the old mill and you get to watch the scenes and then when you go further into the next gallery they have an actual multiplane camera set up with um that goes multi levels through the museum and then you can, and then there's another video explaining how it works. And there they use one of the opening scenes uh, for Pinocchio, the village scene. Um, and so it's remarkable to really get a good understanding of how the multiplane camera works. 
when you see those two um, exhibits at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. And if you're ever lucky enough to be at the Walt Disney Archives at the Walt Disney Studios, they have uh, they have one of the multiplane cameras there. You can get a decent idea about how multiplane works at One Man's Dream here mm-hmm. at Walt Disney World. They have a little small uh, section uh, that that shows off the basic concept of it. But uh, if you really want to do a simple way to understand multiplane, uh, one thing I recommend doing sometime when you're really bored don't do it right now especially if you're driving but uh, find find a flat point uh, preferably like a screen a computer screen and then hold your hands out in front of you and obviously put one hand a little closer to the screen screen one hand closer to your face and then let your eyes adjust uh, to the different points and you know you can hold something up if you want to as well too to make it but you can get a really good idea about how how the different depths can mm-hmm. completely change the entire look of of the visuals with it. So you can you can kind of do it on your own as a little test to be like, wow, yeah. okay, when I pull these two together, it they go in focus, but then the background blurs out, and it's it's a fun little fun little oh, way. You're to, right. I'm doing that right now, <laughs> just speaking. Yeah. yeah. If you if you can't see uh, if you don't have great depth of field, it's not going to work. Uh, but if you if you do, you can just kind of mess with it. It helps to understand how it all comes together if you don't have access to to a museum right in front of you <laughs> with uh, with the technology explaining it all you can kind of you can kind of visualize it so that's my that's my fun craft craft for the day not crap <laughs> that's very good that's a lot of fun to achieve the new subtlety of color Walt wanted the backgrounds for Snow White were all painted in grayed down transparent watercolors rather than the vivid colors of the cartoon shorts this muted palette was more suitable for the current limitations of Technicolor, which at the time was capable of capturing only mid-range colors. A challenge of working with transparent watercolors is that they cannot be altered once they are on paper. If an animator, working from the final layout tracing, decided that more time or space was needed for the action in the scene, he would add it in. The drawing would then go back to layout, where it might have to be changed. This would also necessitate a change in the background, which had been painted from the same original master layout. A finished watercolor background often had to be discarded. This was only one of the many battles going on in the stress-filled studio in 1937. The story department posted a sign directed at the animators that read, It was funny when it left here. Amongst the animators, the Grim Natwick team and the Hamilton Lusk team were constantly at odds. No animator liked the way another was animating the same character in a different scene. Fred Moore's dwarfs were the models of choice, but Gustav Tengren, now separately creating the publicity drawings for the film's posters and the window bills, was picturing the dwarfs in his own fashion, which upset Fred Moore. Mark Davis said Walt Disney unconsciously kept the peace by adopting a friendly convention throughout the studio. Said Davis, I think the greatest thing Disney ever did was have everybody called by his first name. He was Walt. I was Mark. 
You were Tom, Dick, or Harry. It's hard to get angry at somebody that you're on a first-name basis with. He somehow or other had that intuition. There were only two people who were called Mr. in the early studio. One was Mr. Rogers. He was a carpenter in his 70s, and so out of respect for his age, he was called Mr. Rogers. The other was Mr. Keener. Mr. Keener was the paymaster, and he was a Mr. because the studio had trouble raising the money every week for payroll. The money problems became critical in the middle of production. In 1937, Walt recalled the situation in later years. Then came the shocker. My brother Roy told me that we would have to borrow another quarter of a million dollars to finish the movie. I had to take the bits and pieces of completed film to show the bankers as collateral. On the appointed day, I sat alone with Joe Rosenberg of the Bank of America, watching those bits and pieces on a screen, trying to sell him a quarter of a million dollars worth of faith. After the lights came on, he didn't show the slightest reaction to what he's just seen. He walked out of the projection room, remarked that it was a nice day, and yawned. Then he turned to me and said, Walt, that picture will make a pot full of money. <laughs> I yeah. get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Joe Rosenberg was a Bank of America's um loan officer for the, for the Walt Disney Studio at the time. Mm-hmm. So that's why it was him. There. Now that the loan was secured to finish the film, Walt went back to work with even more drive. After every drawing, from story sketch to finished and cleanup animation was approved, each phase was filmed onto reels in test camera. From these, the artists could judge the continuity of his own work, and Walt and the directors, sitting in the sweat box, a room that the animators found hot to begin with and then hotter under stress, could critique the work in progress. Even with the end-of-year deadline looming, Walt made major changes in the final months of production. He had a natural feeling for what ought to be in the story, and he added and subtracted scenes to advance the plot. Walt added additional animation to the scene when Snow White and the dwarfs are singing and dancing. He explained to Ollie Johnston that Snow White is singing Someday My Prince Will Come and the audience will want that to last forever because the witch is coming. Two scenes that had been integral to the film since 1934 were cut by Walt in 1937. The soup-eating scene, because, as he explained to Ward Kimball, who had animated the scene, Ward, I don't know how to tell you this. The soup sequence is funny, but I've got to take it out. I've been looking at the picture. Now, Walt looked at it two or three times a day. And I've got to get back to the Wicked Queen. Next to go were the lodge meeting, in which the dwarfs decide to build a bed for Snow White, along with the bed-building sequence that followed, because this funny interlude interrupted the witch's journey to Snow White's cottage. Other individual scenes were edited to tighten the drama. These cuts were painful to the animators who worked on them, and painful and, and expensive for Walt. You know, I I don't... <clears throat> necessarily know how they would have felt if they would have stayed in the movie 
Uh, but like, I, I know I watched the soup eating scene very recently. I don't, don't remember if I was watching through like deleted, deleted scenes or if I was just watching it on YouTube, but it like watching it on its own, it didn't, it, to me, it, it felt off compared to mm-hmm. the rest of the movie. And uh, I, I haven't, I know the bed building one was also a deleted scene. You know, all the rough animation sketches with yeah. it. And it's been a lot longer since I, I've seen that one. But uh, it, I, it, I think that they were actually good cuts, at least the soup eating scene. It, to me, it felt like it just didn't vibe with the rest of the movie. Yeah. I agree with you. Um, yeah, these deleted scenes are actually on Disney Plus under the under details or extras, I guess. For the film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and I, I watched them uh, very recently, and yeah, I I feel that I, I I enjoyed the soup eating scene a bit. The bed building scene, I just thought, okay, if all of this was all together in that one scene, you know, where Snow, you know, the, you know, like the day following Snow White in the cottage and all that, when she first meets the dwarfs, I thought, yeah, this goes on too long. Yeah, I I think it was a good cut. I I feel like uh, the scenes would probably work in how how some of the animated shorts are made today, where it's, you know, they necessarily won't be a full proper short that's been made and just dedicated to it, where sometimes they release these little shorts that almost feel like deleted scenes Mm -hmm. that are fully finished. Like if if they released like a, a. Eating soup with the dwarfs is a special little three minute, like, uh, bonus feature, uh, animated short. Like, that would totally make sense. But shove it into the movie. I just don't know if it would, yeah. if it would fit as well. But there, there was something there. It was, it was cute yeah. enough to, to do the work on it. Yeah. But, and there is some, there's some clever little gags in the lodge meeting and bed building sequences. So they're definitely worth watching. Um, to see. I need see. to watch the rest soon. Yeah. Now, Olivault's deletions cut one-seventh of the film's projected running footage from 8,196 feet to 7,000 feet, the equivalent of 13 minutes. So instead of 91 minutes, the animated portions of the film ran 78 minutes. With the opening credits and the story's introduction using the turning pages of the storybook, the film reached its final 83 minutes. As the visual aspect of Snow White was taking shape, so was the musical side of the film. The single most important individual behind the music was composer Frank Churchill, who had been with the studio since 1930. Churchill's talent was the musical equivalent of Fred Moore's drawing talent. He was self-taught, instinctive, endlessly prolific, and had a knack for composing catchy melodies out of thin air, seemingly without effort. Churchill was behind the success of Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, the studio's first hit song that had introduced the studio into the world of popular music. When work began on Snow White in 1934, Churchill was assigned to write the songs. The manuscript outline of 1934, for all its usable ideas, had suggested several song titles, and one of them was Someday My Prince Will Come. Walt immediately seized upon this title, and it appears in future manuscripts and outlines. 
By December 1934, Churchill had composed the melody that would go on to become the film's most popular song. The completed film includes this and eight other songs, all composed by Churchill with lyrics by Larry Murray. The songs for Snow White are a paradox. At one level, they achieve the timeless quality that Walt desired for his story, but at a deeper level, they ground the film in the 1930s, a golden age of American popular music. They convey a variety of moods, romantic songs for Snow White and the Prince, and novelty songs for the dwarfs. Walt had definite ideas about how to present these songs within the film. In a story conference, he said, Really, we should set a new pattern, a new way to use music. Weave it into the story so somebody doesn't just bust into song. The songs in Snow White are integrated into the action and dialogue, so they seem to flow from the narrative rather than being tacked on as isolated production numbers. Along with the vocal numbers, Churchill was responsible for a large part of the film's incidental score. Although Churchill projected a sunny disposition, he was subject to moroseness and a nervous condition that was not helped by his heavy drinking. Early in 1937, he suffered a collapse and was absent from the studio for several weeks. After his return, he continued to undergo a nervous strain and left the studio in mid-August with the Snow White score unfinished. He would return the following year on a limited basis. The task of completing the score fell to Paul J. Smith and Lee Harline. Harline was studious, serious, and had an extensive background of musical training. In an interview, Harline said, I now have to write additional thematic material to compose the picture and, of course, must try to maintain the general atmosphere of what already has been composed. So fitting my ideas into those of the previous composer and escaping any hint of patchwork is not easy. And some of Harline's compositions were patchworks of short musical bridges between compositions by Churchill. The score depicting the witch's arrival at the cottage, her pressure on Snow White to eat the apple, and the dwarf's race back to the cottage in an attempt to save her are all Harline's work. Smith's contributions include a turtle theme for one of Snow White's slow-moving forest friends and the prayer at evening scene in the cottage. The first tentative recording of a section of the score took place in late August 1937, shortly after Churchill's departure. Harline used a 28-piece orchestra to record the music for two sequences, Walt, giving the music the same scrutiny as he did the story and animation, was dissatisfied with the result. Since it was cost-prohibitive to bring the orchestra back each time, Harline recorded small passages with small ensembles or with a single organist. After Walt approved the music, Harline would bring in a full orchestra, 36 to 40 pieces, for the final recording. Max Turr, the vocal music director at Paramount Studios, was hired to conduct the chorus for the film's main title and final scenes. How do you feel about the the score of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? I think it's beautiful. I yeah. love it. It's one of my favorites to listen to. See, that's I was 
I was kind of grappling with this as you were discussing it. I I think the score fits the movie really well. And I think I think it is beautiful, but for me it just it it's not iconic. It lacks something that that makes it uh that makes it completely memorable and and like a, a really important score as far as as music goes uh with with movies but uh i kind of feel the opposite way then about the songs where these songs throughout this movie are just so so good and mm-hmm. i i know it's you know for when you're a kid and you're hearing uh you're hearing i'm wishing for the first time and someday my prince will come you're you know you kind of wonder like why does it sound like that because at that point you haven't you haven't really learned enough about music to to realize you know it's still very early in in the grand scheme of things in terms of recording music and such so it's not it's not like sitting down today where anyone can record themselves singing and it sounds absolutely fantastic but uh it's the songs themselves are just so 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 good and mm-hmm. i think the i think the songs just they they completely completely overproduce compared to the the score. But uh, that being said, I mean it's it's all it's all those elements that come together to to make it good. If <laughs> if if the score was better than the songs, then we not we might not still be talking about Snow White <laughs> and the Seven Dwarfs today. I think the score is very unobtrusive compared to the songs. I think the score is just very relaxing. It sets the tone, but it's very much in the background. Unlike, I think, films that came afterwards, where I think the, I don't know, the, um, I, I, I don't know what the proper word, musical term would be, but the, but because of the instruments that were used, the score is more noticeable yeah. in the action. Yeah, and sometimes that's okay. Like, uh, you know, a good example is Star Wars. That music is very noticeable, and it also fits the tone and everything, uh, everything happening on screen perfectly. But it is, it is not. It's not the type of score that uh, that you're sitting back and you. It's setting the tone, but you just you don't necessarily remember it well because it just all blends and it's all part of that final project. I feel like to me, I feel like there's a lot of good examples of movies in the. Uh, in the in the 30s 40s that era that that do this well like um uh the king kong score the original mm-hmm. king kong i feel like that is a classic score you probably can't remember a single single uh musical movement from it but when you watch it in the movie it it hits that tone perfectly and i, I feel that way about gone with the wind too i mean besides the the main medley uh, the main theme uh the rest of the the rest of the music blends really well and i think i think uh snow white and the seven dwarfs is very similar to to the wizard of oz and that it hits with these iconic songs but then has a a score that just that just is the perfect background for the movie mm-hmm. without necessarily being able to be more memorable than the songs that are in it so although i think in wizard of oz the character themes musical themes for each individual character are much more memorable i yeah it, i i'd say i'd agree with that as well yeah. too uh very 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 close to snow white but i i think you're you're 
you're hitting the you're hitting it right on the nose there. Now the premiere was set for December. The animators were still drawing in September. Most of the backgrounds were approved for production in August, September, October, and into November. During these months, most everyone was working 15-hour days, the women from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. and the men from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. By October, the final two links in the production chain, ink and paint and camera, were working in shifts around the clock. No one on staff was paid overtime, but they were given 35-cent meal tickets, which they spent at the restaurant across the street, where they gathered to commiserate. Beyond that, there was no socializing between the male employees and the women in the ink and paint department cloistered in the annex, which I believe the, the, they refer to as the nunnery. <laughs> That's funny. By November, the studio had run through the quarter-million-dollar loan. Some staff continued on with reduced or deferred pay. Walt occasionally ran the dailies for the staff to keep up enthusiasm, but they were barely enough to alleviate their concerns about how it would all come out. Walt was the only one who had a total grasp of the film, and even he had worries. He admitted, I began to have some doubts, too, if we could ever get our investment back. Walt's concern was well-founded. The studio had invested $1,480,000, more than four times the average cost for an American feature film in 1937. The premiere at the Carthay Circle Theater on the evening of December 21, 1937, was a gathering of Hollywood's glitterati, Charles Chaplin, Judy Garland, John Barrymore, Clark Gable, and Carol Lombard mingled with some of the anonymous creators of the film, the select storymen, layout artists, background painters, and animators to whom Walt had given tickets. There was great anticipation amongst them. Although they knew the worth of their work, they could not know how the audience would react. Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston recalled they were stunned to see the audience crying at their animation of the dwarfs, weeping at Snow White's beer. For more than 30 years, animated films had made audiences laugh. For the first time, one had made them cry. Ward Kimball remembered that evening. As I look back on it, we knew where they were going to laugh from experience, but we weren't prepared for the crying and sniffing in the audience. That was the thing I started hearing. Clark Gable and Carol Lombard were sitting close, and when Snow White was poisoned and stretched out on that slab, they started blowing their noses. I could hear it, crying. That was the big surprise. We worried about the serious stuff and whether they would feel for this girl, and when they did, I knew it was in the bag. Everybody did. The houseful of hardened movie industry professionals received Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs with laughter, tears, and overwhelming applause. Its success assured, the film ran at the Carthay Circle Theater until well into the spring. On New Year's Day 1938, Marjorie Belcher and the costumed dwarfs who had been at the Carthay Circle Theater premiere and had been making nightly appearances throughout the Christmas season at the Dwarfland set that had been set up outside the Carthay Circle Theater rode on the Snow White float that became the hit 
of the Tournament of Roses Parade. The New York premiere took place on January 13, 1938, at Radio City Music Hall, then considered the most prestigious motion picture theater in the world. No film had ever played there for more than three weeks, but Snow White ran for five, with greater and greater crowds coming each week. A special telephone line was installed to help the theater staff handle the calls for reserved seats, and they received calls at the reported rate of 150 per hour. The film was an immediate and unqualified popular and critical success. The nation's critics voting in the film daily named Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs the best film of the year. It placed second to The Citadel on the 10 best list published by the New York film critics. It won a special award from the National Board of Review. Walt Disney was awarded a special Oscar at the 1939 Academy Awards ceremony, which was made up of one big and seven little statues presented to him by child actress Shirley Temple, who said, Aren't you proud of it, Mr. Disney? And Walt replied, I'm so proud, I think I'll bust. And you can see this beautiful Oscar at the Walt Disney Family Museum in the lobby. Throughout 1938, the film continued to open across the country, then around the world, greeted everywhere by the same outpouring of delighted applause from critics and audience. Snow White was not only a success, but it was an enormous, historic, record-shattering success, a milestone in film history. Theaters canceled their bookings of other films to extend Snow White's run. Overseas, despite the foreboding gathering clouds of war, the film played for months in European capitals. According to studio estimates, more people saw Snow White on its initial release than saw Star Wars on its initial run. What do you think of that, Craig, being a Star Wars fan? uh, That's impressive. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'll, I'll give I'll give it to Snow White. I I think I, I know Star Wars was was a, a juggernaut, and you know it it was out in theaters a long time and built and built and built, and uh, it definitely definitely it left an impression. But you know, I, I I'm a man enough to admit that there's there's other movies that have left a bigger impact in the world than than Star Wars. <laughs> Good, good for you. (laughs) Rival animation producers who had laughed at Walt's idea to produce a feature-length animated film now saw the millions of dollars that Snow White was bringing in at the box office and announced feature-length animated films of their own. We mentioned Wizard of Oz a bit earlier. Based on the success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, MGM greenlit The Wizard of Oz. So and hope that it would be there, Snow White, in terms of success. I, uh, we'll have to wait and see if it ever <laughs> lives up to it. Yeah, yeah, that'll be it. That'll be a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in recognition of his dual contributions, Walt Disney was awarded a Master of Science by the University of California and a Master of Arts by Yale in the summer of 1938. In spite of all this, 
Walt was still not satisfied with the film. He noticed a flaw in the animation of the prince as he walked up to the bier and bends to kiss Snow White, which caused a virtually imperceptible jitter, and he wanted it fixed. Most Disney film historians state that Roy Disney dissuaded his brother because of the huge cost of $250,000 to $300,000 to correct it, and that they simply did not have that kind of money. Roy always claimed that Walt said, you've said enough, let him shimmy. But a 1938 article in Liberty Magazine reported, even after the film was running in New York, he was still working on animation, new animation for The Prince. He sent it on, too, and made the theaters use it. And, you know, I have watched Snow White several times, including just a couple days ago. And I have looked for this jitter, and I cannot find it. So it has to be that at some point it definitely was corrected. Yeah, I was going to say, I've I've never seen it, too. Uh, I've watched Snow White many times with Kylie, and I, I swear she will look at her phone the entire time we're watching a movie. But if there's a mistake in the background, if there is like any little glitch, anything wrong, it, it's like she was watching with eagle eyes the entire time and points it out immediately. And she's never noticed anything either. So uh, I'm with you. I think, I think it's been fixed mm -hmm. at some point. Yeah. I mean, they, they're saying like historians have said, there's nothing in the archives about like correction tickets being written out that I guess it was something like it that's standard, standard in the studio for uh, to improve and correct animation. But so that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Because, you know, Walt didn't always follow his own rules. So they think it's, it's most likely that Walt did have the animation corrected. So. Yeah. But Walt had little time to enjoy the success of the film. Two new features, Pinocchio and Bambi, were already in the early planning stages. These films in the brand new studio in Burbank are being started with the revenue from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Some estimates place the film's 1938 revenues at $10 million from both foreign and domestic release, making it the most successful film ever made. And when you think that you know, going to a movie may have cost like a nickel or a quarter, that's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. Also, I just, I not to disrupt us there, I am reading that... The shimmy was fixed back in 93 when it went it through its uh, big digital restoration, the first ah, major one. So okay. that that would explain the shimmy. No, well, we I'll have to go back gate. to I'll have to go back to my old um, my my really old pre 19 <laughs> 1990. What was it? 1993? Yes. Yeah. I'll have to see if I have any old VHS of Snow White. Let's see, okay. Yeah, now <laughs> now I'm interested. We're gonna, we're mm -hmm. going down the wormhole, really, because there's that <laughs> 1938 article that says he corrected it. So I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, there was also the spin-off merchandise that had been planned during the film's production. A February 4th, 1938 article stated. 
The byproducts, reproductions of the dwarfs and Snow White, are selling up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, fashioned in every substance from platinum to soap, from charm bracelets to sweatshirts. Snow White dresses for children are in all the department stores. Snow White toys are all over. Snow White books are crowding the cosmetics out of drugstores. Snow White songs are on the air in record sets, selling thousands of copies of sheet music. There are even Snow White hands and bacons coming on the market. And that's only the beginning. Remember, the film isn't yet four months old. Frank Churchill, Larry Murray, Paul J. Smith, and Lee Harline had created such an effective score that three songs from the film had become hits. Whistle While You Work, Someday My Prince Will Come, and Hi-Ho. And Snow White was the first film to have a soundtrack album. As part of the marketing, the studio contracted with the Covassier Art Galleries of San Francisco to globally distribute pieces of the film, a selection of drawings, cells, and backgrounds for which the studio had no further use after they had been photographed for the film. Walt had set a precedent for preserving the best of cells and cell setups in his gallery and museum shows from 1932 to 1934. Whilst animation drawings went into the studio archives for reference, the majority of cells were discarded, washed off, or destroyed. But in August 1938, 7,000 of them were saved for the initial sale to museums and the public through the nation's art galleries. This was reportedly done in response to demand from fans who wanted to own a piece of the film. Looking back on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Disney artist Ken Anderson said, I have warmer memories from working on Snow White than any other picture, although, or even though some of the other features turned out better. It was a turning point, a triumph, the realization of all our fondest dreams, which had been sown by Walt. We felt we had achieved something trying to follow through what he wanted, and we thought that Snow White was it. It never dawned on any of us there would be any other features. We hope you've enjoyed our series on the making of Walt Disney Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and that listening to these stories will enhance your enjoyment of the film and increase your appreciation for the talent and dedication of all those who created it. When you read the film credits, most of the names of those who created the film will be familiar to longtime listeners of our show. And I hope you'll take the time to notice those names. And remember that it is only a few of the hundreds of artists, animators, in-betweeners, inkers and painters, storymen, musicians, vocal actors, and singers who contributed their talents to bringing Walt's first princess to life and creating the foundation of Walt Disney's company and legacy. Now it's time to take a look back at This Week in Disney History. Okay, Craig, here we are. In the week of April 25th, we're going to start out, since we're in animation, that's sort of my theme for a lot of this week's questions. Okay. So, so April 25th, Walt Disney's Donald Duck cartoon, Let's Stick Together, directed by Jack Hanna, was released on April 25th, 1952. This short features the last appearance of a bee 
What is the bee's name? I I'm gonna go with Spike. I know there was one other bee. Mm-hmm. I think another bee name, but I'm gonna go with Spike. You're right. There is another bee name. It is Spike, and the other bee name is Buzzbuzz. That wasn't even what I was thinking of. <laughs> so I don't know what I was thinking of. Okay, well, very good. <laughs> okay. okay, April 26th. Disney's Wonderful World series airs Disney Animation The Illusion of Life on NBC TV on April 26, 1981. Loosely tied to the book of the same name by legendary animators Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, the host of this episode appeared in such Disney films as Pollyanna and the Parent Trap. Who was the host? With Pollyanna and the Parent Trap, I'm gonna have to say it was probably Haley Mills very good you're correct it's Haley Mills I thought I had to throw a, a hint in there yeah no <laughs> if you would have just said which Disney starring <laughs> lady was in there I would I would not have so yeah. thank you you could have only you're given welcome. me one and made me really go out on a guess but I appreciate the help oh you're welcome so okay April 27th which Disneyland Tomorrowland attraction cl- permanently closed on April 27th, 2001? Uh, I re- I, I'm going to go ahead and say it was probably Rocket Rods because it feels like we're at the point where we we talk about Rocket Rods every time right around this point <laughs> each year. <laughs> you're right. You're right. It was Disneyland Rocket Rods. And that this was like the, the star attraction when... Tomorrowland got its $100 million facelift in 1998. Although it's been closed since September 2000 for a refurbishment that was the last until spring 2001, no work was actually ever seen on the attraction. And despite efforts by designers and mechanics, the rocket rod was plagued with problems. It was essentially a faster version of the people mover. So, anyway, and it's just sad. It will continue <laughs> to rest in pieces. As yeah, and rot. And it's <laughs> yeah. a track rot there. I, listen, the memories of Rocket Rods, even though I never got to go on it, but it was running the the first time I went to Disneyland, those memories will never, never drop out of my head. I can, I can picture that thing running around the track, and I wanted to be on it so badly except it was constantly breaking down the one day that we had there and even when it was running it was like a, a ridiculous two-hour line or something like that yeah yeah when we were there with our children it was the week before it was scheduled to open and they were testing it i thought this thing is loud i mean it's ridiculously loud and then um, when we went back, it was already closed, <laughs> never to reopen again. It was closed for refurbishment. So it's one of the few Disneyland attractions I never rode in the whole history of Disneyland. Uh, they need to dig out one of the rocket rods, fire it up, so you have the chance to actually ride it once. Yeah, it would be nice, wouldn't it? I think it'll be <laughs> worth it for them. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine the publicity, especially if I go sailing off. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, April 28th, musician Charles Levere passes away in California on April 28th, 1983. He wrote the music for which popular Disneyland show? 
I'm I'm going to let you give me the answer because okay. I'm not 100% positive. He wrote the Golden Horseshoe Review music. And he was a jazz pianist, saxophonist, trombonist, cornetist, accordionist, singer, arranger, and composer. And he played the piano for the Golden Horseshoe Review at Disneyland from 1955 through 1960. Yeah, that was honestly what I was leaning towards, but I just wasn't. I wasn't all the way there confident. Okay, April 29th. The premiere run of this Disney film came to a close on April 29th, 1939. What is the title of this film? I'm going to go ahead and guess Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That's <laughs> right. You had I had to get something in there about that. Came to a close when the Walt Disney Studio pulled it off the market in the United States. By the day's end, first premiering in December 1937, the popular animated film has been running since January 1938. It's quite a run. Yeah, it's uh, very impressive. Okay, April 30th. What toy was first widely introduced to the public on April 30th, 1952, when it became the first toy ever advertised on television and was later featured in a Disney Pixar film? Oh, um, <clears throat> um, uh, Potato Head. That's right. Mr. Potato Head. Over one million kits will be sold in the first year. Originally invented by George Lerner in 1949, Mr. Potato Head was sold to Henry and Merrill Hassenfeld in 1951, the creators of the toy company Hasbro. In 1995, Mr. Potato Head made his Hollywood debut with a leading role in the Disney Pixar animated feature Toy Story, which boosted his popularity and brought him to the attention of many who had forgotten his special appeal. Now, I had one of these early... Mr. Potato Heads, which I'm sure you've seen the pictures of these early ones. Yeah. You used your own potato. <laughs> and and all the little bits and pieces that you put on the potato had these sharp little nails on them. And somehow we survived because Barely. that went on for quite a while. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never I, – clearly I never had that version, but I never had the plastic version as well either. I just – I never – I just – Never got the uh, the blessings to have a potato head. And yeah, our children had the plastic version. Yeah, I, I don't want to, if I have children one day, I don't want to upset them. But since I couldn't have a potato head, I'm not going to give one to them either. And oh, we're just going to become... Your children are supposed to have more than what you did. They are, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to go ahead and put my foot down on this one and say that we're, the Williamses are not a potato family. Well, I, I know what I'm giving your child for a birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving it all potato family. And then, of course, we would, because you could put them on anything, we would, um, we'd make Mr. Bell Pepper, and there was Mrs. Potato Head too, and we'd make Mr. Carrot, <laughs> so we'd do all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah. That's how you... We had a whole vegetable family. <laughs> I, that's my favorite my favorite moment i think of all of them in toy story 3 when uh when mr potato head is uh takes takes a different form for the short bit in that movie <laughs> so uh i i i would be all over that if i had that original version of potato head i i just find everything that, that feels no pain and put it on that 
Yeah. <laughs> sure someone put it on oh. a dog at some point in time and that's probably why they stopped stopped doing it or a human yeah. <laughs> probably oh i'm sure many a brother attached it to his little sister yeah. <laughs> so. anyway. all right and finally may 1st the disney mgm studios theme park at walt disney world opens to the public on may 1st 1989 located south of epcot it is Disney's fifth theme park in the world. Although it rains throughout the day, the park is packed. It is the largest opening day press event in Walt Disney World history. A program called Star Day, Star Today, will allow celebrities over the years to leave their mark. Who was the very first Star Today celebrity? I feel like I know this one, but I'm not. I'm not positive. It's original Mouseketeer Annette Funicello. That's not what I was thinking. So oh, glad okay. I didn't embarrass myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And released on the same date, the animation studios is a nine-minute short titled "Back to Neverland," and this special film features Walter Cronkite and Robin Williams. Amongst the Hollywood legends visiting the park are George Burns and Bob Hope, who helped cut the film strip ribbon dedicating the studios. So, Carol and I saw a couple of those um, Star Today ones. So Betty White was, I know, one we saw. Oh, wow. I can't remember who the others were. We saw, I think we saw like three of them. That, that's awesome. Very cool. Mm-hmm. I did not see mm-hmm. any of them. <laughs> yeah. So, Well, that's it. So, pretty good. Yeah, not too this shabby. This week in Disney history. Okay, well, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, this this is a special film for me and Carol, because uh, the first dance at our wedding was Someday My Prince Will Come, no. that we did together. We, I, I had insisted that we take dancing lessons before. I said, if everybody is dance, you know, if everybody's watching us, I want to know what I'm doing, especially for this. And so the dance instructor, who was a friend of Carol's family, she'd gone to school with, like, the dance instructor's son, um... She sped it up just a little so that it would be an easier song to waltz to. And then we had to talk to the DJ about this is a speed you have to run this at. And then, uh, and then we, um, yeah, we learned how to waltz at it. And then I remember, and then we had to learn a couple of other steps for other songs. And then I remember Carol did not want the wedding videotaped. And this is the only reason I wish it had been videotaped because we got out on a dance floor, Carol in her big flowy dress and I'm in my morning suit. And she, we get out there and the music starts. She says, I don't remember anything. <laughs> and I said, just follow me. And we went through it. And um, there's some lovely photos that were taken by our photographer of it but um everybody said we did a great job that's so. uh yeah i you did it the right way at least trying to learn even if you forgot parts of it uh just just trying to trying to do it in the first place uh, i know i know kylie would have been a lot happier with me if i would have put in some effort but i i know my limitations i i don't function like that i i trip over my feet when I'm, I'm usually trying to do anything athletic. I love playing sports, but I, I like klutz when it comes to that. So I, I know dancing's just completely, completely out of my, uh, comfort zone. So I, I applaud you for, for oh, learning thanks. what you did. 
Oh, well, it was because I am a klutz that I said we have to do, we have to learn this dance. And it got me to where I wanted to take ballroom dance lessons and, and, and other types of dance lessons that Carol never wanted to. And I said, you know, I am probably the only husband on the face of this planet that is willing to do dance lessons with you. And you're saying no. <laughs> I love watching people dance. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful art. And that's how I I look at it is that, you know what? I don't need to, I don't need to be the one to actually be doing it. I'll just enjoy the people who are better at it. Oh, see, I would love to, to be able to do it. Oh, well. But, you know, I got to thinking as I was watching Snow White, rewatching it the other day and doing this whole series that I really think. Snow White needs to get more attention at the Disney parks and like on the Disney cruise lines and all that. Like the, the great thing is at Disneyland, they, they have, they just upgraded or they just made enhancements to our Snow White attraction. So I thought, okay, that one's staying around a long time. You know, Magic Kingdom, they made it into a, they took it out, made it into a meet and greet area. Although they have the seven dwarfs, you know, Seven Dwarfs Mind Train. It's not the same thing. The focus is completely different. But um, I thought, you know, and that's one more attraction that, you know, if you don't have a young child now, you know, that's another attraction that's taken away from you. Mm-hmm. You know, they took out an attraction and put in a meet and greet. And and even Disney Cruise Lines, they have the Disney Wish, and apparently they've unveiled that Cinderella is the statue, and I think Rapunzel's hanging off the stern, mm-hmm. and all that. And I thought, you know, Cinderella, sh- I mean, um, Snow White should have had a more prominent place, because she really was the foundation for all the f- all the animated films that came after that. Yeah, and I mean, there's still if if. Uh, cruising is able to get back to the level that it was before you know we still have two more ships hopefully to look forward to obviously plans could change with that but it definitely uh with with the name i mean well i shouldn't even say that i was about to say with the name wish you you feel like you could uh you could definitely see snow white in there nice and easily however then you think about it and all those Disney princesses love wishing about. Oh, they do. They all have wishes. Yeah, it's you know. what a good trait. They all they all yeah. get to wish. They should make a fireworks show about wishes. <laughs> we'll figure that out oh. one day. But. but even even half the times in parades, you know, the 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 princesses are on floats, but Snow White's out walking. You know, yeah. she doesn't even get a float half the time. Yeah, that was always, uh, you know, one of my big annoyances with uh, with Fantasmic pre the last upgrade was it, it drove me nuts that that little mermaid got when the princess floats would come out that little mermaid got a fair share and and beauty and the beast got their fair share and then snow white it would just like zoom on by, by. And, <laughs> like that that always drove me nuts because i do i i'm 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 right there with you i i think snow white does deserve more prominence and especially especially at this point in time and i i know there's probably a lot of people who do disagree with us and think that think that something like mine train and uh snow white's ride in disneyland is enough plus the other little nods there but uh, i i just i feel like there's there's still more to to develop and and work with with snow white in particular and let's 
let's pump the brakes for a little bit on the the renaissance movies and let's let's start exploring some of the newer princesses that aren't frozen related and i'll even say i'll even say rapunzel too but let's let's focus on some some more of the new and then maybe let's go back to to more of the older ones and let's give let's give them new life let's give uh, aurora some some new extra life yeah. to her and uh, yeah, especially I've, Disneyland. She has a whole castle named after her. <laughs> let's um, let's give her a little more attention as well. Yeah, uh, but overall, you know, I'm. It's uh, that's the issue with with Disney in general is that there's only so much room and only so much they can do, and they have to make choices, and it's it's not always going to be popular with us. And I just I, I wish they could find a way to be able to do more with with mm-hmm. all with all of the good characters and then with uh, with characters that aren't even princesses that just deserve more attention. Yeah. Yeah, and of course connecting with Walt owes its existence to Snow White in a way. And I think I've told the story before, but way back in the day, the first big exhibition that the Walt Disney Family Museum had was on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I went to it and I was already writing. I was a contributor to the Diz um, on articles. I was doing little history articles and things like that. And then, and I was reporting on, um, I was writing something up about, I think about the Snow White exhibit at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And Tom Bell, who is the producer and host of the uh, legendary Dis Unplugged um, Disneyland um, podcast, he invited me to come on as a guest to talk about the exhibition, which I did. And that was, that was my only role. And by that time, I knew everybody on the show. They were all friends. And, then, uh, and then that was it. It was one and done is what I thought it was. Carol asked me how to go. I said, I think it went fine. You know, they seemed to be happy. And then about two weeks later, Tom reached out to me and said, um, would, he had been talking with Pete Werner, the founder and co-owner of, of the Diz and said, would you like to be, oh, no, no. First he said, do you want to come back and be a full member? fully participate and he ran through the format and this is what I had to come prepared to do and I said sure I'd love to do that and I told Carol I think I'm being auditioned but I'm not sure yeah. so um, so I did and I went through it and I was my jovial self and then I didn't hear anything for a couple more weeks and I thought well you know that was fun and then that's when Tom reached out to me he'd been talking with Pete and then asked if I wanted to be a regular member of the show and i said that would be terrific and that led to um that led to my history segments caught the attention of folks who were you know who they weren't necessarily the walt disney world was their primary park but i was doing segments on the history of disneyland and films and all that stuff and they said, you know, they, they were contacting Pete saying, you know, you have somebody talking about history of Disney and what about history of Walt Disney World? Pete reached out to me. We started discussions about, uh, about a standalone Disney history show. And that took a little while to sort out. And then that's how connecting with Walt came to be. So it all goes back once again 
to to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs built built up connecting with Walt. So yeah, I mean, it just doesn't it doesn't roll off the tongue. It all started with a Snow White. <laughs> I don't yeah. well, Maybe we'll have to give Tom a little credit and say it all started with a Tom. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll get that yeah. catchphrase working for the future. Yeah, and we wanted to let folks know since I brought up the Walt Disney Family Museum several times that the the, the exhibition hall where they're showing um an exhibit on on Walt Disney Studios in World War II has been open for a while, but beginning April twenty second. So by the time you hear this show, the main museum is opening. So you have to, you know, it's limited. You have to go online, reserve a date and time, like you do for, you know, most uh, museums. And if you want to see the exhibition, you have to reserve a day and time. And then you have to, if you want to then go into the main, if you want to go to the main museum, you have to reserve a separate ticket you know, in time for that. And um, so I'm going May 1st, and I'm seeing both. Uh, I'm going to go to see the exhibit, and then I'll, we'll talk about that and uh, on a, in a future show. And then also um, I'm going to walk through the museum, see how it held up during this pandemic. So I'm very excited. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm very excited for you. Hopefully they dusted everything off. Yeah, really. At the very least. Really. So I and um but and you do have to if you are planning on going, you can go to their website w it's wdfm.org and you can um reserve all that. And they, they are maintaining you have to wear a mask, you have to do social distancing, they're limiting who can how many people can go in at one time and all that, but it's well worth it. So I used a few references in putting this episode together, but uh, I used some books. Uh, the first one of all, The Making of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs by J.B. Kaufman. Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, an art in its making by Martin Krauss and Linda Witkowski. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the art and creation of Walt Disney's animated classic film by J.B. Kaufman. And The Disney Princess, a celebration of art and creativity by Charles Solomon. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the different random podcasts and videos that I'm a part of on the Diz Unplugged Podcast Network. And then you can always find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. And you can email me, Craig, at WDWINFO.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com, Twitter and Bowling121, Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt, Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with both me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.